what we're doing, we're in a series uh, going through these moments where we encounter Jesus and um, he does something, says something that um, is puzzling, um, it's frustrating, it maybe leaves the reader questioning, wondering what's going on, um, and I'm going to be, oh good, it's up there, I thought I was still trying to do that. Um, this though. Okay, here we go. Um, I'm going to be trying to here hold, keep this scripture up here as we go. Um, last week, we, we started and we, we looked at um, this uh, encounter that Jesus has with a Syrophoenician Canaanite woman in which he seems to use this derogatory uh, ethnic language toward her. And, and we looked at that, we said, man, that seems really challenging and that sort of thing. Tonight, we're going to look at an encounter where Jesus confronts a person who's a Gentile, again, um, but it, this thing, this time doesn't really have anything to do with ethnicity. Um, he's, he's a demon-possessed man who's among the tombs. Do you remember this story? It's a weird story. And in the process of it, these this 2,000, this herd of 2,000 pigs goes running off the cliff, right? Sort of thing. And it leaves people like, Asking him to leave, would you please go? <laughs> they don't want him there. And so um, we're going to be looking at that. So if you have your Bibles and you want to open them or turn them on or whatever, if you're online, I would really encourage you to have your Bibles out. I don't know how well you can see the screen if you're from where you're watching from. But you can turn to Mark chapter 5. Mark chapter 5 is where we have this account now, first, let me, let me give some context to what's happening here, okay? Immediately before this, like on the way to get here, something happens that I would suggest kind of sets up the story for us, and you probably know this story very, very well. It, this is the account of the storm at sea. You remember that? They go out there, they've had a long couple days of ministry. They're traveling across, they're going from northwest uh, Galilee across down to the southeast. They're going from Jewish territory to Gentile territory. And on the way, we read that this storm kicks up. Jesus is exhausted. He's sleeping. You know this account probably. The disciples, it says the water's coming into the boat. They get extremely fearful. They run to him to wake him up. And he gets up and he just says, to the storm, it says he rebuked it, which is an interesting word. He said, quiet, be still. And it said everything was just like glass, just quiet immediately. And the story in chapter 4, verse 41, right before we get to this, it leaves this question on the lips of his disciples. Who is this? That even the wind and the waves obeys him. Because see, the point... What, what, what they're starting to realize is he has a level of authority that I haven't really come in contact with before. You see, in the Old Testament, it was Yahweh, God alone, who could control the, the storms when rain comes, that sort of thing. Listen to Psalm 89, verse 9. It says, you rule over the surging sea. When its waves mount up, you tell them to be still. Listen to Psalm 107, 23 through 29. Now listen to this. Some went out on the sea in ships. 
they saw the works of Yahweh, his wonderful deeds in the deep. For he spoke and stirred up a tempest that lifted high the waves. They reeled and staggered like drunkards. They were at their wits' end. They cried to Yahweh in their trouble, and he brought them out of their distress. He stilled the storm to a whisper. The waves of the sea were hushed. It's almost like Jesus is is acting out (laughs) the psalm, right? It's almost like a little play he puts on. Yeah, remember that Yahweh character who could do that in the Old Testament? Wait, what? Who, who is this guy? He leaves that question in their mind. And Jesus acting this out. But I would suggest there may be something more going on here. There may be something deeper that we don't quite clue into often that'll help make sense of both this, but certainly the next story. And what I mean is this. In the ancient Near East, Water, this was for virtually all people groups, and I'll explain why in a second here. I'm going to show you kind of their worldview. All people groups, the seas, the the oceans, um, they weren't just where you got your water from. They were a place of chaos. They they were a symbol of danger, of, of evil, oftentimes a symbol of evil forces acting against God. That's why it's significant when it says he rebuked them, well, that's the same language he uses when he rebukes a demon. Something is going on there. I would suggest something more ominous. Let me show you something here. When, um, when you hear the word cosmology, um, not sure where your mind goes, but a person's cosmology or a, a people's cosmology refers to how they think about the structure of the universe. Like, what's out there? <laughs> what's real and how is it all put together and Where's my place in that, and where's yours and God's place? Does that make sense? That's, that's someone's cosmology. It's your view of the cosmos, of the universe. The ancients had a certain cosmology, and it was, it was a, it, this wasn't unique to Israel. This is how the ancients thought about the world. Let me see if I can zoom in a little on this here. Can you see that okay? That's pretty small, isn't it? Okay. Um, okay, I think that's good. I'll, I think I can zoom in a little bit here too. The ancients had a certain view of the universe, and it was essentially a three-tiered aspect to reality. So when they thought about what was real, there were three components to it. And again, we have to realize, let me just pause here before we go into it. God comes to a people... Israel, in this case, at a certain place, a certain time, a certain culture, and he reveals himself to them. And so he speaks to them in ways that make sense with their cosmology, right? He doesn't first show up and say, okay, we're going to have a little physics lesson here, and then I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to save you. He's, he's in a, just like he does that with me. Just like if I were to walk over to our kids' area, and I were to talk to them about about Jesus loving them, I might do it really differently than you geniuses out here, right? Because why? You're, you're just different age, stage of life. So we talk and speak and think differently. And so when God interacts with the ancient people, and this is whether they were Canaanite, Egyptian, Israelite, whatever, this is how they thought of the world. First, you would see is there is, is that a little better? It kind of zooms in on there. 
there's the first level of reality is the heavens. Uh, and then there's the heaven of heavens. This is, this is God's space. It's the idea of sacred It's space. It's, it's where God is. And um, there is, there's the firmament. The firmament is the water above. You know how every once in a while we get that nice rain, right? That's, that's, there, there's water up there. If, if you remember in Genesis chapter 1, in the creation account, it says he separated the water, the waters above from the waters below, and he made the expanse in the middle, the heavens. So there's water up there, obviously. Well, what keeps all that water from um, not just falling on us all the time. Well, there's, there's a firmament. There's something solid, like a dome. And that dome is what's holding that up there. And the dome reaches down, and it has foundations. It rests on things, like mountains, high mountains, are like a foundation for this giant dome or firmament overhead. There are um, heavenly bodies, stars, sun, moon, that sort of thing. There's, there's the earth, of course. And the earth sits um, on the water, almost like a disc. You might think of it like that. And what keeps it from sinking is there are, there are deep, uh, like columns-type structures that, that, are, that are holding it up. Because, the, you know, Second Peter chapter 3, he, he says, you know, we know that the earth came up out of the water. It, it, it rises up in their cosmology. And so there's, there's that space, heaven. There's earth, man's space. And then there is the deep where Sheol is. And Sheol is beneath us, and it's the place of the dead. Uh, it's, it's not a particularly good place. It's oftentimes described in either watery ways. So it's very much associated with uh, what you would, when you think of, like, I just went out there a little bit. Well, okay. The great deep. <laughs> the great deep is this murky, unknown, kind of spooky um, existence no one knows what it's like down there. The book of Job, he talks about that. When God comes, he goes, do you know what's in the great deep? Have you ever seen it? Have you ever gone down there? And he realizes, no, I have no clue. I have no concept. And so it's the idea that humanity knows tier two, that's where I live. But tier one and tier three, they're just these unknown realities. I don't, I don't exist there. I don't live there. And so this is their worldview. And so as a result of Sheol being down there, um, there's this idea that um, there's an association with the deep, (laughs) the abyss, and Sheol. Does that make sense? It's not the same place, but they have these similarities. They're down there. They're dark. They're not good places. They're scary places. And so this is the, the uh, worldview, heaven, earth, and then the underworld. This is this three-tier system that uh, the ancients are influenced by. See, this is why in, in the book of Revelation, do you remember when it, it's, it says this, and oftentimes people are like, there's going to be no ocean in the new creation. <laughs> Listen to what it says, Revelation 21.1. And they saw a new earth and a new heaven for the first 
heaven and first earth had passed away, and the sea did not exist any longer. You see, what he's, not, he's not making a geographical argument. <laughs> he's making a theological argument. The sea, and everyone knows what that is. Every, everything that's in, the sea doesn't exist anymore. Oh, wonderful. Evil has been vanquished. Death is gone. The darkness, that's all wiped away. Are you tracking with me? Does that make sense? Okay. Given that, let's jump back into the story. And I think we might see some things that seem a little weird to us. That's because we're moderns, <laughs> okay? So let's, let's jump into the story here. And I would encourage you, as we go, um, this is always the case, write down your observations if you have a piece of paper. Write down questions that arise in your mind. You're like, what is that about? Or that's strange. Or why is that? Or things you just notice and observe. Oh, that word was mentioned like eight times. I wonder if that's an important word. I wonder if that theme is important because I keep hearing it. So let's read. This is, uh, oh, that's we're going to go to chapter 5. Verse 1. It says, they went across the lake. So that was that just crazy event that they had. Went across the lake to the region of Gennesaris. When Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an impure spirit came from the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the tombs, and no one could bind him not even with a chain, for he had often been chained hand and foot, and he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day, among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him, he shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High? In God's name, don't torture me. For Jesus had just said to him, Come out of this man, you impure spirit. Then Jesus asked him, What is your name? My name is Legion, he replied, for we are many. And he begged Jesus again and again not to send them out of the area. Verse 11, a large herd of pigs was feeding on the nearby hillside. The demons begged Jesus, send us among the pigs and allow us to go into them. He gave them permission, and the impure spirits came out and went into the pigs. The herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. Those tending the pigs ran off and reported this to the town and countryside, and the people went out to see what was happening, what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there, dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man and told about the pigs as well. Then the people... Be People began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. As Jesus was getting in the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged him to go with. But Jesus said to him, <clears throat> uh, Jesus did not let him, but said, go home to your own people and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. 
So the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and all the people were amazed. Great story, isn't it? I mean, it's like Mark is high action, high adventure. Mark's just like fast-paced, these short stories, quick this, this sort of thing. What I want to look at is in verse 9, what's going on here? I just want to take a little bit deeper look for a couple minutes. Verse 9, we read, then Jesus asked him, what is your name? My name is Legion. Legion uh, is like, would have been about 6,000 Roman soldiers. I don't think it necessarily means there are 6,000 demons here, uh, but a lot probably, and well, enough to do something to those 2,000. He replied, for we are many, and he begged Jesus again and again to not send them out of the area. So here's, here's my question. What is he asking? What is he worried about? What does this mean? He says, he begged Jesus not to send them out of the area. So let's kind of ask some questions about the text. First of all, who's the audience? And hint, there are pigs there. Who's the intended audience? Certainly his students are always an audience. But who's the intended audience? Are they Jews? No. He went to a Gentile area. This is, this is the Decapolis. Decapolis, there were 10 Gentile cities altogether all spoken of as the Decapolis. This is one of them. So these are Greco-Romans. These are Greco-Roman people. And this is his audience, and we know it because they've got this giant herd of pigs <clears throat> right there. And so what's really interesting is um, the ancients, and I'll certainly speak of Greco-Romans because they, they definitely had this worldview, and, and you can make the argument that this is also a part of Jewish, Second Temple Jewish thought as well, but it's certainly the view of Greco-Romans in the first century. They, they saw water... And they believed water, remember we were talking a little bit about that earlier, water was a barrier to spirits. It played some role as a barrier to evil spirits. This is a common motif. Um, Deceased spirits would have to cross a river before they would um, enter the land of the dead. And and the river functioned as a way of uh, keeping that sort of proper domain, if you know what I mean by that. Um, And so... Um, this same motif, it appears in lots of Greco-Roman stories. Uh, spirits are defeated by being driven into the water. It's not that water itself, but it's, it's the abyss. Remember that? <laughs> that's, that's sort of a final place. And, and so to be driven into the water is that, that sense of um, they're done with, they're dead, or there's some sort of horrible penalty. So the setting, it's interesting, both Mark and Luke explicitly mention that this took place uh, where he meets Legion right on the seashore. That's a dangerous place for a spirit, is the idea. It's right on the border of land and water. This is perilous. And so Luke even tells us, in fact, the word that Luke uses uh, when the... um, a demon-possessed man requests not to be sent away from the land. Uh, Luke, Luke uses the word abyss. And it <clears throat> may not necessarily be the abyss in um, Revelation that we often translate, you know, the, the bottomless pit kind of thing. Uh, the Greek version of the Old Testament uses this word abyss when it says um, 
God created the heavens and the earth and his spirit was hovering over the darkness of the abyss. So it's that deep place. It's that unknown dark stuff there. Um, so it's this, it's this great deep. And this is in and itself really interesting because remember, oceans in the Bible represent the uh, spiritual darkness, um, darkness aligned against God oftentimes anyway. We see that in Daniel 7. We see it in Revelation 21 as well where uh, water is spoken of in that way. Now, in Mark's account, in this passage that we just looked at here, most translations um, use the word land. You know, don't, don't cast me from this land. He said, okay, look, what does that mean? Well, it could be I want to be on land and not in the abyss, in the water. It, you know, it could be a territorial thing as well. But it is interesting these demons in the Gospels, they have an affinity for the desert. And you may have never noticed this before, but it's all over the place. Um, for instance, Luke 2, let me show you this one here. Um, oh, that's the one where... So yeah, Luke 8. Luke 8, 29. Um, Luke tells us, you can see, I think it's, yeah, up there. Um, bounds and be driven by the demon into the desert. And you go, okay, that just maybe means, you know, he's going into solitude. Yeah, <clears throat> problem is, when Jesus speaks of impure spirits, you know what he says? He says, when an impure spirit comes out of a person, it goes through arid places. Um, that's Matthew twelve forty five. Also, when an impure spirit, this is uh, Luke eleven twenty two. when an impure spirit comes out of a person, it goes through arid places. Or uh, when an in, unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places. This is Jesus saying this. <laughs> so Jesus is saying there's some, there's, there's some connection he has in mind, even if we can't exactly figure out what he means by this. But there's some connection between spirits, these evil spirits, and dry places all throughout this, uh, all throughout this. So then the question is, okay, how do we, how do we put this together? <laughs> like, what's, what's going on here? Um, if we kind of combine the, the clues, there's this ancient presupposition about water and about the deep. Spirits were in some way bound or destroyed by water. Um, Jesus meets legion, we're told, like right on the shoreline. Um, now, how metaphorical is this about the I don't know. I'm not exactly sure. But clearly, there's some connection between physical geography and the terrain of the, um, what would you call it? cosmic geography of the spiritual world. There's some mapping over. And we're not told, what does that look like? I don't know. I don't know. There seems to be some mapping over of these two realities as it comes into play here. So the water here, at least it represents in this text something in the cosmic geography of the world. Again, even if it's difficult, but they're somehow linked. There's some sort of a link there. So he asked Jesus instead, can I go into the pigs? Now, People always ask, why would you, like, Jesus doesn't bargain with demons, right? There's this weird thing of, like, why would he say yes to that? He, usually he just says, don't speak, shut up, beat it, <laughs> you know, that sort of thing. Why does he entertain 
and then give a request, something that these demons or spirits want. But it's actually fairly straightforward. It serves a really good purpose. See, the demons thought the pigs were their way out, right? Um, after all, why would Jesus care that some unclean animals, they're unclean anyway, in an, and it's not even Israel, this is in you know, Gentile territory, so maybe Jesus will just kind of let this slide, and we can kind of you know, figure things out later. But no, Jesus doesn't let it slide at all. Instead, he intends to get rid of the demons permanently and to use, use these pigs as almost like a, a, a vehicle, a vessel, through which to demonstrate it to everyone looking, everyone's watching. And so they're just convenient. See, if, if Jesus sends legion out of the man directly and into the sea, will anyone know it? I mean, you didn't see him leave, right? If you just have to take him by his word. He's healed. But where are the demons? Maybe they're still around. Maybe, they're still, maybe this guy got rid of them, but, you know, they can come back or whatever it might be. There's no physical evidence. And so the power of the event, it's diminished. But the demoniac is healed. Let me, let me read for you what, what one author wrote about this because I think he captures it so well. He says, by sending, the, the, uh, by sending legion into the pigs and then over the cliff into the water, Jesus is able to demonstrate his power not just in expelling unclean spirits, but also in dealing to them permanently, in judging them, binding them, destroying them. Whether the sea actually has anything to do with the place that the demons are bound in the spirit world isn't the issue, the author writes. It represents that place in the mind of the ancient audience. So by sending the demons into the sea, by way of the pigs, Jesus fully and incontroversibly vindicates Legion's own claim that he is the son of the most high. Isn't that interesting? <laughs> Jesus is doing something so that it's incontrovertible. I have greater power than the spirits that are like in your territory. You know, this, there are a lot of people today, I was just listening to someone talk, they, they had been over in India, and in India, they're, they're sharing Jesus with them. And these people say, I like that very much, but I can't leave my God. He will kill me. He will do something awful. I can't leave him. So it's out of fear. They recognize this is wonderful, but I can't because this spiritual being who I worship has authority and power over me. And, and what Jesus is demonstrating in one of those areas where there are spiritual forces there, he's saying, no, they're bankrupt. I have so much strength over them, they can't harm you. If you're in my family, they have no power over you. And that's this assurance. And he's starting to make this move into Gentile territories. So these, and we see that again, uh, Daniel chapter 10, Daniel chapter 20, we encounter it again. I don't fully understand it but we encounter there are these spiritual beings which are given authority in certain areas. And what Jesus is doing is slowly stepping into each one of those and saying, you know the authority you had? I'm taking it back. You don't have that authority anymore. And what's so interesting is this, this theme of unclean. Have you noticed 
how many unclean things are in the story? Maybe you notice that as we were reading. <laughs> First of all, they go to Gentile territory, unclean, right? Where's the person living? Yeah, he's living among the tombs where there are dead bodies. You come in contact with that, religiously speaking, as a Jew, you're unclean, right? Um, it's, it's like one thing again and again, there are un, there's an unclean spirit, we're told. There are pigs. <laughs> and so what's so cool is that through Jesus, the kingdom of God, it's invading everywhere that's unclean, and it's beginning to purify it. It's, bringing, it's, it's making everything that is unclean, pure, and those areas that have been defiled by the evil spirits, by Satan, are now, again, it's, it's, it's taking back land is what it is. It's taking back territory, uh, spiritually speaking. It's taking back people. And it's so interesting, <clears throat> this request by the man who's healed at the end, have you noticed that beg is in here a lot? Uh, the demon begged. And the townspeople begged him to leave. And then we see this, one again, it's real strong language. Uh, go back to verse 18. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. This is interesting. Jesus did not let him, but said, go home to your own people and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So the man went away, began to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And all the people there were amazed. It's interesting that the point and counterpoint between the Gentiles, these Greco-Romans who are there, who are just like, get, get, please, please go, please leave, right? Even though this man was here, it's not worth it. Please go. And then this guy's response, who asks, begs to go with them, and Jesus says, no, I want you to go, I want you to go home. But what's so interesting to me is, have you, um, in fact, uh, chapter, I think it's chapter one, the same book, um, Jesus heals a leper, and this is a Jewish leper, and you know what he always tells the people he heals, the Jewish people? Don't say a word, you know, keep it on the down low, <laughs> right? And it's this big thing, and it's, it's called the messianic secret. It's this idea, I, I mean, there's tons of speculation over why he does it, but he, he does it constantly. He always says, shh, shh, don't, don't talk to people about it. And many scholars think that's likely the idea that he wanted to be able to define what he meant by Messiah. And as soon as this gets out too much, people, of course, people always have ideas. We have people saying, oh, we're going to force him to be king. Oh, he's going to get rid of the Rome. Oh, he's going to do this. They had these preconceptions about what it meant to be the Messiah. And he, he was saying, I'm going to define it on my terms. And so that's, that's probably what's going on there. And what's so interesting is when he goes over the Gentile territory, he goes, go tell everybody. Let everyone know. See, none of these Greco-Romans would have any concept of what a Messiah is going to do. They just know this this is, this is the son of the most high. We serve lesser gods, these lesser spiritual beings. This one says he's the son of the most high God, and he's stronger than all of our local gods. What is that about? And Jesus says, I'm fine with that message being out. And kind of like we talked about last week, this is one of those seeds he's planting where this evangelism, though it's first to the Jew, not only, it's eventually going to be opened up to all people. 
and he's going to be reclaiming the nations. And that's what we see in the book of Acts. The book of Acts is him, him reclaiming. Remember when Acts chapter 2 and it says, here are all the people here at Pentecost, and it lists from all these different nations. There's, you've got Scythians, and you've got Carthians, you've got Africans, and you've got all these different people. Now, they're all Jews. They're ethnically Jewish, but they're culturally mishmash. They're speaking different languages. And Jesus says, I'm going to reclaim the nations. I'm going to begin to reclaim the nations, and I will have my family. And the spiritual forces will not stop me because I will have my physical family along with my spiritual family. Another thing that's so interesting, maybe just a last observation or two here, this man who says, I want to, I want to follow you. I want to, he, what he says is, I want to be with you, which that's beautiful. I mean, it's not just like I want to be with you. He's like, I just want to be with you. This is, you know, you think about it. I wonder how long it's been since someone in any unit had really shown this guy love. He's freaky. He was scary. No one wanted to be around this guy. And he's like, man, Jesus loved me. This guy, whoever he is. And he says, I just want to be with you, which would have been apprenticeship. And Jesus tells him to, no, I, I want you to do it a different way. And what it shows us is how impossible it is to have a stereotyped definition of discipleship. Uh, one person is taken away from their home, chapter one. Another person is sent back to their home. And, and Jesus says, you're both doing discipleship, which is really interesting. And what it tells me is that also means oftentimes, you know, I have conversations with people and they go, man, I really want to serve God. And they think the only way they can do it is if why I need to change my vocation or I need to do this or I need to become a whatever. And what this tells us is no. You, maybe, maybe that's what you're supposed to do. That's not the only way to do it. Sometimes God will call you to, because he says, I want you to be my witness. He uses that word. Maybe you're in a, in a very difficult career situation. And you're like, man, why doesn't God open up another door? I mean, I'd, I'd go serve him in Africa. I'd become a whatever. And God might say, go back there. <laughs> yeah, but I hate those people. Uh-huh. I know. I love them, though. Go back there. I want you to be my witness. Well, how am I, I going to be your witness? I'm, what does this guy even know? He doesn't know much, but he just says, just tell him what I've done. Tell, tell them, the, them the, the impact that has happened as a result of just being with me. How has it impacted you? And I think that's a call for us to say, okay, maybe I need to let Jesus define what being his witness is and not our culture, not even our church culture, not my Pre, you know, preconceived ideas. What does it mean for me to be a witness for Jesus? And I guess that's my challenge to us this, this week is that what if this week all of us said, okay, Jesus, how do you want me to be a witness to you, for you in the spheres that you have already placed me? What does that look like? Could you just like clear out my mind of what I think that means and give me new vision for what it would mean to be a witness for Jesus wherever the next step I take, whatever that looks like. And so we're going to move toward communion. And as we do, I want us to have this in mind, that this, this Jesus, he's willing to go into really hostile territory, really hostile territory. And of course, we know that everywhere we go, he's, he's with us. We're bringing him. He wants to go into really hostile territory 
where other spirits have been ruling, where other spirits have been in control, where other spirits have been damaging people, damaging truth, damaging God's good world. And he's saying, I'm reclaiming that. I'm taking that back. That's no longer under that control because I am the son of the most high. And so over these next few minutes, here's what I'm going to ask us to do. I'm going to ask us to go to one of the stations around. This is only if you're comfortable doing it. If you're not comfortable doing it, you do not have to at all. The little cups that we have have a little seal on top, so they're clean. They've been put in there with people who have uh, had gloves on and being very careful uh, to protect you the best way that we can. So, But it, like I said, don't feel like you absolutely have to if, if you don't feel comfortable. Go to one of the stations. If you would please take one of the elements. Don't open it. Don't take it yet. Just go back to your seat. You can stay standing. Let's, let's worship in this song, reflecting on this reality of this Jesus who goes into hostile territory, proclaims that he is the son of the most high God, and takes back what's his. And that's us. And so... So let, go ahead, I'll, I'll dismiss you. Go ahead and go to one of the um, stations, hold it, come back to see. You can stand, sing, and then we'll close. I love those words that we just sung. Bow down before him because he's Lord of all. That's what this man learned. <laughs> he bowed down before him because he realized he's supreme. And that one who is supreme, who is Lord of all, humbled himself, became a man, a servant, a bondservant. In fact, the last meal he had with his disciples, when he, when he took the Passover meal, he put a towel around himself and he served them. Nothing was beneath him. And he said, what you've seen me do, go and do likewise. And he said, every time you celebrate this meal, you're going to proclaim that I'm Lord of all. And I've gone down to the very pit and back up. And so he took the bread and he said, this bread is my body and it's broken for you, my family. Take it in remembrance of me. Let's take the bread. In the same way, after the meal, he took that last cup of wine. So this cup is my blood in a new covenant. Each time you take it, you proclaim my death until I come again. Let's take the cup. Heavenly Father, we need this. Thank you for a physical reminder of what your kingdom is about, what you are calling us to do, and that you would go to any lengths to have us. God, we respond by giving you our lives and saying we love you. We want to, we like the man said, I just want to be with you this week. God, would you be with me? And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Amen. You guys, thanks so much for being here tonight. Hey, if you have kids, we finished a little early. Uh, I rarely do that. So um, would you not go grab your kids out and just let them finish? It's like 10 more minutes is all. Thanks for being here. Love you guys. Make sure to grab your uh, these things and put them in a receptacle on the way out. Have a great week.